starting in verse 1. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whatever it is love, whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good and to the evil, to the clean and to the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who, does not, who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of men are full of evil. And madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. But he who is joined with the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die. But the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward. For their memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy has already perished. And forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. Let your garments always be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with your wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun. Because that is your portion in life and your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol, where to which you are going. Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to all. For man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with a few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building a great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he helped deliver the city. By his wisdom, he delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, although this poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. 
The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. This is God's good word for us. Be to God. Just two housekeeping things before we get started. I want to underscore the announcement regarding the serve spots that we still need, especially in kids' ministry. And particularly if you're a member here and it's been a while since you've served and you're able to help us fill this need, uh, we really need you. So please pray about that. We've got many members who have been serving for quite a while, and it's time for them to have a respite and for you to, to have a go at serving. So please pray about meeting that need. And then secondly, we have several, several members of our far-flung family that are going to be with us over the summer. Uh, so this is like uh, Aaron was here this morning. Marcus and Sarah Beth are over here. Um, Glenn and Christy and their crew are here. Greg and Diana and their children will be uh, here soon. Charles and Carrie Ann will be visiting later this summer. So keep an eye out for the far-flungs that you recognize from our services and from your calendars that you have. And just be sure to stop them and say, hey, encourage them. That's part of what coming back to North Wake is supposed to be about. So just get ready to get your North Wake hug on with some of our North Wake far-flungs that are back here. Uh, and then also, you know, Tyler and Lauren Pegues and their family will be moving to Wake Forest this week. And if you didn't hear the announcement like two or three weeks ago back about uh, Tyler joining our staff, then maybe you should, you might want to check your emails because I sent a note about it as well. And I included a note about an opportunity or a way to serve them as they settle in. So get ready to welcome them too. Lots of fun stuff. All righty. Ecclesiastes chapter 9. You know, if there's an emotion that I wonder is truly lacking in the world today, perhaps in the church today as well, I can't help but wonder if it is joy. We live in an anxious age, you know, worries about interest rates, political controversies, even theological controversies, scandals in the American church, international conflicts, life in a post-pandemic world, health scares, job insecurity. This can all add up to a whole lot of worry and very little joy. Uh, in the movie About Time, the main character, Tim Lake, he learns on his 21st birthday that the men in his family have the ability to travel through time in their own lifetime. And Tim's father teaches him that he should live each day twice. The first time through, just kind of making it through the day, you know, with all of its anxieties and pitfalls, enduring a boss who's a real jerk, uh, waiting in line when he's running late, the stress of managing an uncertain court case, an annoying passenger on the subway who plays their music way too loud. But then when Tim gets to the end of the day and sees that everything really turned out okay, then he goes back and he lives the day again. This time through, he's able to laugh off his unreasonable boss. He's able to wait in line with some patience. He's able to work with lightness and even play air guitar uh, rock and roll along with the annoying subway passengers' loud music. Now, you and I don't have the ability to travel through time. At least I don't. Not that I know of. I've tried. Didn't work. But Ecclesiastes wants to help you learn to live each day like it's your second time through. 
The teacher of Ecclesiastes, or Grandpa Q, as Larry is fond of calling him, he's already lived this life through with both great success and great vexation or angst. And he's trying to help you live with the perspective of someone who's already lived. And in this passage, he'll want to show us that because there's one thing in life that is certain, because there's many things in life that are uncertain, we should therefore live our days in a certain way. I'm going to go a bit out of order in the passage here because as often as the case in Hebrew Scriptures, the meat or the conclusion of the passage is found sandwiched in the middle. But in verses 1 through 6, you're going to see that death is certain. Verses 11 through 18, we'll see that life is uncertain. And so then verses 7 through 10 will give us the, so what do I do? And it's honestly somewhat of a counterintuitive conclusion based on the first two things that I just told you. Death is certain, life is uncertain. So how should we live? Let's find out. First, death is certain. Uh, Chapter 9, verse 1. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know, both are before him. Now the teacher's just following through on his thought from the last chapter where Larry taught last week, where he talks about even the wisest person cannot really figure out life, not down to the T. And so he walks a tightrope here as he begins. On one hand, you get a sense of his ultimate faith in God when he says the righteous and the wise and their deeds, even though we can't understand life, they are in God's hands. And that's comforting. But on the other hand, he says that still doesn't make them invulnerable to the full spectrum of life experience, love, hate, everything in between. Both are before him. Man does not know what his life will hold. Verse 2, it's the same for all. Since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he shuns an oath. This is an evil that is done under the sun, that the same event, i.e. death, happens to all. Also, the hearts of men, children of man, are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that, they go to the dead. So it seems like he's saying it doesn't matter who you are, righteous, devoutly religious, total scoundrel, we all end up in the ground. And that's not fair. Plus, there's evil wrapped up in everyone's heart while they live. After that, we die. Hooray, more of Ecclesiastes. You know, and you can, but you can start to hear his, his frustration come through. And at this point in the book, this is part of why I love the book, uh, it's like he's a dog gnawing on a bone that he just can't quit. He's trying to sort his way through what life is about and through all the hevel, the frustration and the fleetingness. And he's raw. He's honest. He's relatable. He comes back around to it, turns it in his mind over and over as he laments the curse of sin and death in the world. And if you've lived very long, the reason this is relatable is because if you've lived very long, you have had these same thoughts and feelings. You know, why is it that at my home church back in Georgia where I'm from, why is it that our children's director lost her son, who was my friend, to brain cancer when he was just 19 years old? only to then lose her husband a few years later to ALS. Wasn't she serving Jesus with her life? Wasn't she doing good things? Why this fate for her? 
Had she done something wrong? There's many more stories like this, as you well know. I appreciate how commentator Ian Proven put it. He said, it's true that the way of faith and obedience to God is in the end the blessed way, and God's blessings can include good health, financial prosperity, and happiness. It's untrue, however, that the faithful and obedient person will only and ever possess such things, and that they can somehow be sure of avoiding illness, disaster, and death if he or she can simply muster enough religious devotion. Biblical faith is not about control, nor is it about the manipulation of God so that God will do as we wish. You see, Ecclesiastes, as we talked about the very first week, it's trying to give you the antidote to what we call the myth of religious fulfillment, where we're prone to believe that if I love God and follow Him, my life should go better than other people's. And I think we all, even though we wouldn't say we believe that, we do believe that at some level. And our quickness to rail at the Almighty when our lives derail on us kind of shows our, our true cards here. But like a vaccine that prepares your immune system for a deadlier form of the pathogen, Ecclesiastes wants to brace your soul for the inevitable, your own sickness, your own death, the death of those you love under the sun. These things are certain. They will come to all of us, believer or unbeliever alike. He goes on, verse 4. But he who is joined with the living, with all the living, has hope for a living dog is better than a dead lion. Now, ancient world, they didn't love dogs like we do, right? We love dogs as a culture. That time, they did not love dogs. It's like saying a living rat is better than a dead, you, I don't know what the best animal is today, like a tiger, a unicorn, an elephant. You pick your favorite animal and insert there. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die. But the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Now, if you're a Christian and you read that, you're like, seriously, somebody buy this guy a systematic theology book, because I mean, clearly he did not go to Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Does he not know? about the resurrection in the intermediate state where to depart and be with Christ is far better than life here. And doesn't Paul say to die is gain for us, isn't it? And yes, of course, theologian, you are right. But I think you might be in danger of missing his point. Being alive is good because right now is your chance to live, to live this life. For the dead, their time has come and gone. Your time is now. You see, even the doctrine of Christian eternity does not undercut what you do with this life. If anything, it underscores it. This life and everything you do in it really matters. As one author wrote, every act of our lives strikes some chord that will vibrate in eternity. As Jesus says to his disciples in John chapter 9, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. In other words, right now, this life, this life is the time for living, for making choices that have eternal consequences, for doing ministry, for doing God's will. If you're going to live, you should get after it because the day will only last for so long. 
As I said in the very first week of the series, and I'll quote Inigo Montoya once again, the teacher tells us, prepare to die. But he wants us to prepare to die by living well. David Gibson writes, to die well means I realize every time I see a coffin, it preaches to me that the world is broken and fallen and under the curse of death, and I am part of it. It means I realize that I am not owed three score years and ten by God. I think Gibson is Scottish, so he speaks in like three score, ten, and whatever Lincoln said at the Gettysburg. It adds up to 70 years, okay? Scottish. He says, only because of his mercy that I'm not consumed today. To die well means realizing that from the day I was born, I lived under the sentence of death, and I am amazed that God spared me as long as he did. To die well means everything I have in this world, I hold with open hands. Because I love Jesus more than anything and anyone else, and I'm happy to go home to him. To live well, you must prepare to die well. As another Scotsman said, well, at least a fake movie version of the Scotsman, every man dies. Not every man really lives. To help us live, the teacher says you must first embrace the certainty of death. But then secondly, you must also embrace the uncertainty of life. The uncertainty of life. Look at verse 11. Skip down a few verses. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor the bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net, like birds that are caught in a snare, So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Now, usually you expect, right, that the fastest person will win the race. The strongest army will win the battle. The smartest guy will make a great living. But if you live long enough, you realize it's just not always the case. Time and chance, in other words, stuff happens to them all. In 2008, Lolo Jones was expected to be the fastest hurdler in the world and win gold at the Olympic Games. But she tripped on the next to last hurdle and came in seventh. The race is not always to the swift. Or in 1963, U.S. Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara said, the war in Vietnam is going well and will succeed. The battle is not always to the strong. In 1943, the IBM chairman, and in the first service, I totally said the IMB chairman, It's like the International Mission Board because I think that my computer autocorrects to that because I type it so often. I don't know what he knows about computers, but the IBM chairman, Thomas Watson of 1943, predicted a world market for about five computers total. You've probably owned more than five computers in your life. In 1956, uh, British astronomer Richard Woolley said that the idea of space travel is utter bilge. So, success. Victory, predicting and controlling life, these are not certain things. Man does not know his time or what might happen to all his efforts. So if you live for success, if that's your thing, get used to disappointment because it's just not a certain thing. Perhaps even less certain is the opinion or approval and appreciation of others, even if you're like a mighty hero of wisdom. Look at verse 13. He says, I've also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. 
But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise, heard and quiet, are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. So a poor wise man, in all of his wisdom, he figures out how to negotiate and prevent a city from being destroyed. And yet very soon, he's totally forgotten, despised, perhaps in his own lifetime. Wisdom's great, the teacher says, but it's no guarantee that people will remember you or appreciate you or consult with you after the need has passed. Life's just kind of uncertain like that. So like in 1846, well before germ theory had advanced, there was a Hungarian doctor named Ignaz Simmelweis. And he noticed in the hospital where he worked, there were these two maternity wards. Uh, One where the doctors delivered the babies and the other where the midwives delivered the babies. And the rate of death of mothers and children was much worse in the ward where the doctors delivered than where the midwives delivered. So Simmelweis tried to figure out the difference between the two wards. He tried having all the women lay on their sides instead of their backs to deliver, which is what they did in the midwife unit, but that didn't seem to help. He tried having all the Orthodox priests with their incense chains uh, to leave the hospital altogether because that was happening a lot in the doctor's unit where everyone was dying. And he eventually figured out that the doctors, unlike the midwives, worked other places in the hospital. So they would go do a surgery. They would do an autopsy on a corpse. And then they go deliver a baby without washing their hands. So he began to have all the doctors in the hospital use chlorine to to clean their hands, and the mortality rates plummeted. Well, the doctors did not like the logical conclusion that this meant they were responsible for the death of so many women and children over the years. So they rejected his theory, fired him from the hospital, and we waited however many more, more years for germ theory to advance. And he was forgotten to history, perhaps died in a psychiatric hospital. Doesn't matter how right you are or how wise you are, that doesn't mean you'll be appreciated or approved or applauded. So, why live for that? The teacher says. We tend to live for things that are totally uncertain, while yet there is one thing that is totally certain, and we ignore it. So, how should we live? The teacher gives a surprising answer. Look with me at verse 7. He says, Go. Eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments always be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Life is uncertain. Death is certain. So live with joy, he says. Live with joy. In other words, don't mope around. Don't be a curmudgeon. Wear white clothes. Put oil on your head. Don't walk around in sackcloth and ashes all the time. You see here, the teacher wants to affirm the doctrine of creation, which says that everything created by God is good and given to us to be received as a gift with enjoyment. You know, I suppose there's always been a misunderstanding throughout church history that Christians are really just supposed to be dour, uber-serious Spartans who really aren't supposed to enjoy anything good in life. And don't mishear me. Of course, there's a time to mourn. There is a time to fast. There is a time for sackcloth and ashes. There's a time to sacrifice our comforts for God's kingdom. But the teacher here reminds us that our general baseline living was intended to be 
one of joy. And that God has already improved our enjoyment of life and created things when he created them for us to enjoy. Created things should certainly not be worshipped or enjoyed above all else that turns them into idols. But if they're gratefully taken as a gift from God's hand, they're meant to be enjoyed immensely. So I think the teacher might tell you today, after church, why don't you slow down and enjoy your lunch instead of slurping it up like a high-powered shop vac, you know? Maybe you should savor that last sip of coffee that's cooling down in your cup right now. Do your hair if you have any. Wear fun clothes if you like. You know, Jesus doesn't even tell his disciples in Matthew chapter 6, even when they're fasting, don't try to look sullen. Don't try to look gloomy. Wash your face. Anoint your head. You know, take a shower still. Put on some Dio. And I know youth camp is coming up in about a week. Uh, so middle school boys, this was your advice right here in the sermon if you tuned out. But if, if life is so uncertain, the outcome of all your efforts in life, if that's so uncertain and yet death is so certain, then he says you should get busy living and eating with joy. Verse 9, he says, Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life. And remember, that's our favorite new Hebrew word, hevel, fleeting, brief. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your brief life that he's given you under the sun because that's your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there's no work or thought or knowledge and wisdom in Sheol or the grave to which you are going. Now, if you're married, there was an important word for you in that. There's a well-known uh, matchmaking website for people who are looking for an affair whose slogan is this, life is short, have an affair. Ecclesiastes says that is so the opposite way to think. The truth is just the opposite. Life is short. So enjoy life with your spouse. Life's too short to grow distant or to hate each other or to mistreat each other or to bring upon your family the inevitable damage of an affair or to refuse to apologize and repent for wrongdoing in your marriage. So work on your marriage. Love your spouse. Arrange your life in such a way that you have time to enjoy one another's company and grow as friends. Life is too short to do otherwise. David Gibson again, he says, if you're too busy to enjoy the life you have together, then you are too busy. End of story. If you do not enjoy each other, it's likely that you're simply taking what you can from each other to pursue goals and ambitions that are never going to give you all that they promise. You may use each other to gain something that will not turn out to be gain and lose each other in the process. And man, life is too short for that. And if you're not married, but you hope to be, I hope these words help you prepare for a good marriage. It's not easy to prioritize time together in these busy days. But I think he's saying life's just too short to do otherwise. And if you're not married and you don't expect that you will be, I hope you can still hear the gist of the passage. Life is too short to isolate, to hold grudges, too short to work half-heartedly. So whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Like work, work hard and enjoy it. Live, the teacher says, 
Ride a bike. See the Grand Canyon. Go to the theater. Learn to make music. Visit the sick. Care for the dying. Cook a meal. Feed the hungry. Watch a film. Read a book. Laugh with some friends until it makes you cry. Play football. Run a marathon. Snorkel in the ocean. Listen to Mozart. Ring your parents. Write a letter. Play with your kids. Spend your money. Learn a language. Plant a church. Start a school. Speak about Christ. Travel to somewhere you've never been. Adopt a child. Give away your fortune. Shape someone else's life by laying down. Down your own. That was a long list of things. Probably can't do them all. But he's just saying, live. Now, both of my grandfathers, who've now passed away, they were very hardworking men. Uh, one was a farmer, so enough said about that. And the other one owned two businesses, held down a government job, and sang with a Southern Gospel quartet on the weekends. And uh, Grandpa Q's voice sounds so familiar to me in this section because it sounds just like the voice of my grandfather. He had the first of many other heart attacks at age 48. And I can still hear his voice say, you've got to learn to slow down and enjoy life, son. I wish I'd learned to do that sooner. And I hear the voice of my other grandfather in this passage. He lost his farm midlife. And through that hardship, he learned to say a phrase. He said, I think every day, every day is a great day. You see, these men were trying to help me live life like it was my second time through. That's what the teacher's trying to help you do as well. This is the voice of a wise old man looking back over his life, trying to help you live it like it's your second time through. Now, even in the midst of all that good advice, a really perceptive listener will ask, okay, so wait a minute. How is this passage any different than the Dead Poet Society, Carpe Diem, you know, or YOLO, you only live once, acronym if you don't know it, YOLO, or any of the other modern takes on eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Like, is this passage even given, giving us any uniquely Christian advice or is this just like kind of good grandfatherly life advice that you could find anywhere? How is Ecclesiastes any different from Peggy Lee when she's saying in 1969, if that's all there is, my friends, then let's keep dancing. Break out the booze and have a ball if that's all there is. How is Ecclesiastes any different from this? Well, it's different in two really important ways. The first is this. Ecclesiastes doesn't say so much seize the day as it says receive the day. Life's not so much something that can be grabbed by the horns, sorry dodge, so much as it is to be received one day at a time as a gift from God. Life can't be mastered like some conquest, but it can be received as a gift. Writer Dorothy Bass, she invites Christians into five practices for receiving the day instead of seizing the day. First, she says we should honor our body day by day. Humans are embodied creatures. We've been given bodies by God. And so rhythms of eating, drinking, washing, these are important parts of human nature. You could add to that some level of exercise, trying to get decent sleep. Basic care for our body does matter. Second, she says, maybe we should offer our attention to each moment, to be less distracted. And she wrote that in 2001. <laughs> yeah. 
Or as one of my favorite professors would say, wherever you are, be all there. Third, attend to God. If you're like me, without regular time given to drop the anchor of God's word and prayer in my life, we can go adrift so quickly, mentally and spiritually. So attend to God. Fourth, say no to say yes. Don't let your calendar control you. Control your calendar. I know that's not always possible, but saying yes to something usually these days means saying no to something else. So at least let's be thoughtful and prayerful about how much we say yes to. Not so we have more time to waste, but so that we have more time to give, that we can say yes to the things that really matter. And then number five, unmastering today. In balance to what I just said about trying to control your calendar, unmastering the day means to relinquish control of the parts of your day that you really had no control over. Interruptions, accidents, these are often God's messengers to us in some way and can still be received. So I think the teacher would urge you to find joy in the life that you have, not in the life that you wish that you had. Now, I realize not everyone's life is happy. There are so many sad things that happen. But I think the teacher would urge you to look for the little things, even small evidences of God's goodness in the world amidst your sorrows. And as you can, live your life with joy. So that's one way that I think the teacher is a little different from just carpe diem, YOLO, eat, drink, and be merry. But the second way that the biblical version of enjoy life and eat and drink and be merry is different from the secular version is that Christians don't eat and drink and enjoy life because this is all there is. Rather, for us, we can eat and drink and enjoy life because of what will be. We don't eat and drink and enjoy life because the present is fleeting, but because our future is coming. This is not all there is. So Christians have a, we have a whole different motivation for enjoying life, I think, than, than anyone else has. It's, it's really unique why Christians should celebrate life. And we do that because it's a taste of what is to come. It's a taste of what is to come. I mean, think about, think about Jesus for just a second. What was his first miracle? His very first. He's at a wedding a wedding feast, and he turns water into really good wine. This is his calling card, his first step into messianic ministry, a wedding feast. The Gospel of Mark and others tell us that Jesus compared himself to a groom at a wedding. And that he didn't let his disciples fast when he was around them because it was party time. The groom was here. Jesus literally ate and drank his way through the Gospels. And if you read it, you'll see it. You find him eating and drinking with sinners, with the Pharisees, with crowds, with his disciples. He would multiply bread to thousands on more than one occasion. You see, this man, the man well acquainted with sorrow and grief, he still walked the earth as the Lord of joy. And it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross, the book of Hebrews tells us. And the last book of the Bible says that his return and reunion with his people will be like a wedding feast. Now, I've been to a couple of weddings in the last month or so, and they were a lot of fun. But the absolute best, happiest wedding you've ever been to, with all the goofy dancing, 
cha-cha slide or whatever you can do and ear-to-ear smiles and the great food and the happy tears that the grandmas cry, these are only a shadow of the great wedding day that is to come. Why does the Bible tell Christians to have, why can Christians celebrate life and live with joy? Because that's the very nature of our master and that's the very nature of our future. You can't live this life twice, but you can see the end. You get to see the end of the day, the end of the story. So you can live this life once with all of its trials, with all of its heartaches, with the joy of Jesus. And so it's interesting, on the night before the cross, Jesus chose to use bread and wine and a meal to commemorate his sacrifice. That night, Jesus would prepare to endure the cup of death so that you and I could enjoy the feast of life. And so today, we take communion. And this table is open for all who have trusted in Jesus Christ to save them from their sin and who are following him in obedience. Not perfectly, but humbly and earnestly. As usual, if you'll use the wall aisles and the center aisle to approach the table, uh, and then these other two aisles to return to your seats. And if you need assistance and don't have someone to get the elements for you, if you'll just raise your bulletin, and we have some ushers who will keep an eye out for you. And then I'll just also add, you know, if, if you're someone here who's been listening to us, maybe you've been here for several weeks, and you're still wrestling with what to do about Jesus, then let me just invite you to call on him right now. There's room at his table for you as well. Take Christ today, because the symbols at the table are are just that. They are symbols, but they're symbols of a God who loved you enough to give himself up to death for you so that you could know that in this life, with all of its trial and heartache, you can have eternal joy. Let's pray. So Jesus, who gave himself for us, we want to give ourselves to you now as we come and meet you at this table. Yes, Lord, with reverence we come, but also with joy. You've given us the end of the story. You've given us a reason to rejoice, even in our heartache. So man of sorrows, Lord of joy, may we learn from you today how to live this life to the full in the brief time that we have. Be our teacher, be our Lord and master as we meet you now, even in this moment, we pray. Amen. And as you approach the table, if you'll hold on to the elements uh, until after you get back to your seat, I'll come up and lead us in taking them all at once. And even as you come, if you know this song, you're welcome to sing as you approach the table. Yes, we do come with reverence, but we also come with a lot of joy because we meet the master of the feast here today. So the table is open.